Welcome to the Talks on Law California MCLE podcast. Interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now for the interview. With millions out of work and businesses shuttered across the country, the economic impact of COVID-19 is grim. For many, the prospect of mounting debt and uncertain income may raise questions of bankruptcy. We'll be discussing bankruptcy with our next guest, what's new, what's changed, and what options are out there as America faces a new wave of insolvency. We're joined remotely by Professor Edward Morrison of Columbia Law School. Professor, thanks for Zooming in with us today. Well, thanks for welcoming me to your program. Maybe we can start with a little explanation of what bankruptcy is. For many of us, it sounds like our worst nightmare. Uh, You describe it as a tool to reduce stress. Well, yeah, I think bankruptcy gets a bad rap, but for consumers, it offers a fresh start in the sense that it can wipe away debts and allow you to start over and focus on your job and your family and regaining some financial stability and eliminating a lot of stress. And for businesses too, it's an opportunity to readjust the debts on the balance sheet and to make them consistent with your ability to pay. But the essential ingredient for businesses is that bankruptcy is a device by which we can save businesses that would otherwise be liquidated by their creditors. Firms that have taken on too much debt that might be torn apart by creditors are are offered a lease on life through the bankruptcy process. We'll discuss bankruptcy as it relates to business in probably the majority of this conversation, but why don't we start with how individuals can use this tool as you describe it. It's seen as having a stigma associated with it, that a filing for bankruptcy is something that appears on your credit report for a number of years. It's something that's un, an unhappy thing to admit. So it's, it is a costly process. And it's for that reason, I think that it's underused. But if it is used, there are two pathways that are available for consumers who need relief. And it really depends upon your goals. Actually, you know, it might be helpful is could you give an example, you know, in the current environment? We all know about the inability that with job loss um, or furloughs and layoffs that many consumers can't pay rents as they come due, can't pay, you know, bank loans, mortgages as they come due. So bankruptcy is primarily a device to wipe out those debts. And so for, for, for that kind of consumer, there's two things to think about, which is one is a timing question is that many consumers don't necessarily need a wipeout of their debts, which is the principal function of bankruptcy. What they really need is time to weather this crisis and to return to normal times such that for many consumers, when they would get their jobs back or when they return to work, they can pay their debts as they come due. So for, for many consumers, bankruptcy may not be the right option right now or at least the wiping out of debts. It's for that reason that public policies such as the CARES Act are so important because that's the kind of relief consumers need, which is time to weather the crisis. But for some consumers, they're going to re- they're, they may realize that however the crisis turns out, they're in a situation where the debts are now at a point where they're not gonna be able to pay them. So coming to bankruptcy offers the opportunity to reduce those debts to a level consistent with the ability to pay. There are two options or chapters for individual bankruptcy. How are they distinct? 
the bankruptcy basically poses a question to you. Bankruptcy law poses a question to, a, to consumers and says, what's more important to you? Do you want to save your assets or do you want to save your income? Now, obviously, everybody wants to save everything, but there's a trade-off here. Bankruptcy law is saying, hey, we're going to wipe out your debts, but you got to give up something. Either give up some assets or give up some income. So you're going to make a choice. Giving up assets, that's called Chapter 7. It's mostly what most consumers use in the United States, and it's the most commonly under recognized form of bankruptcy. And what it means to give up assets is that every state has a rule that you are allowed to keep certain amounts of assets regardless of what happens in your life. It's almost like a social safety net that you can keep a certain amount of the value of your car, the value of your home, the clothes on your back. They're not going to put you on, on the street with a rucksack and a, a peanut butter and jelly sandwich? A fresh start, remember, keep that metaphor in mind that the fresh start of bankruptcy is really only one that's available to you to the extent you can begin that fresh start. And so most laws say like, okay, we're gonna wipe out your debt, but not render you, you know, naked on the street. The tools that you need to earn an income, you get to keep those tools of trade. So in chapter seven, what we what's done is an inventory. They say, which of the assets in your possession are protected by state law or federal law, whatever the relevant law is, that's a complexity that varies. But what, what of your, which of your assets are protected? They're called exempt and which are not. The stuff that's not protected, it might be a second car, a second home. Those things will have to be liquidated and sold to your, and um, liquidated in terms of sold for cash and that cash will be distributed to creditors. It's in that sense that that's one trade-off of bankruptcy is that if you want debt relief, you're going to have to give up assets that are not deemed necessary by law. So you may have to pawn your Rolex watch, but they're not going to take away your Honda Civic that you need to get to work. Right. Unless it's a collector's item Honda Civic. Oh, that's a good question. What if your only car was uh, a Ferrari or some incredibly expensive vehicle. Yeah, so most states will say that you're allowed to keep up to a certain value of your car. So they'll say maybe you can keep up to $3,000 of your car. Well, if your car has a blue book value less than 3K, you're good to go. But if you're owning a Ferrari, the law is going to say basically that your car consists of two things within it. The value of your car you can keep and the value of the car you can't. And we're going to sell the Ferrari, turn it into $100,000, you keep the first 3K, the other 97 is gonna to go to your creditors. And would the same be true of a home? Are you, are you able to keep a certain value? Yeah, it varies a lot by state. So it's hard to speak in generalities because states like Texas and Florida say that you can keep the entire value of your home as long as- You don't as have a mortgage on it. If you have a mortgage on it, what bankruptcy law basically says is you gotta work that out with your mortgage lender. But putting that to one side, that if you live in Texas or in Florida and um, you don't have a mortgage on your home, you get to keep the entire home. Most other states, you can only keep up to a certain value of your home. It's called your home equity. You can keep some of that equity. But if the law says you're entitled to keep uh, 70,000 of the value of your home and the home is worth more than 70, you're probably going to have to sell it and keep the 70. In some sense, you could think of it as the law saying, okay, you're going to have to downsize your assets to a level consistent with what we think you really need to survive. So all of this is within the scope of chapter seven. You mentioned chapter seven involves selling off assets or, or assets above a certain threshold. That trade-off I began with that the law says, hey, you want debt relief, I'll give it to you, 
if you either give up some assets or give up some income. So we went down the assets path. The income path is called chapter 13. And it's really, it's really, though it's, um, it's very interesting. Use of chapter 13 has a lot of geographic variation. It seems to be much more popular in Southern states, some parts of the Midwest. It's a very, it's sort of one of these longstanding puzzles of um, the world. Like why is it that chapter 13 is used in some places more than others? But the reason you want to use chapter 13 is because it allows you to keep all of your assets. None of them are given up. As long as you commit to pay your disposable income to your creditors for roughly three years, sometimes five, but it's th most for most credit for most consumers, it's three years. And disposable income is again done by the judge who does an inventory and says, okay, what expenses do you really need to pay? How much of your income is above and beyond those expenses? That income that's above and beyond, that goes to your creditors. But the key thing here is that when the uh, uh, a consumer enters bankruptcy, what they're think they should be thinking if they're well advised is thinking, okay, chapter 13, it takes a long time, three to five years. Chapter seven, three months maybe. So you can get one done quickly, whereas the other one may require you to jump through hoops for an extended period. It commits you to a repayment plan. So you're gonna have to pay your disposable income and it's usually a fixed dollar that you have to pay every month. And it turns out that for roughly, well, I'll just make it easy, well over half of the people who turn to chapter 13 are unable to do it. They get it a year in and the case is dismissed because they can't keep making the payments because they entered bankruptcy thinking I can make these payments and then life happens and then they can't. So it's chapter 13 is a long time and it's a risky long time. And so the question you have to ask is, do I want quick relief or do I want to do the slow thing? Well, the slow thing lets you keep your assets. And then what asset do you want to keep that might be lost over here? Maybe it's your car. Here's one big thing is that the state law may not protect all the assets you need. Some of those you may need to get to work like your car. So you may live in a state that does not fully protect the car you need to get to work. More than that, Many people enter bankruptcy having financed these assets, like you got a car loan, you got a home loan. You cannot get rid of those things in chapter seven. So um, even if the state says, hey, you can keep your car, if you financed your car, you're still gonna lose it. So what chapter 13 says that you can keep all your assets, even ones that you would, especially the ones you need to get to work or get your kids to school. So for many people, chapter 13 is important, just even though as risky it is, how long it takes, it may be essential to keeping your job. Why don't we transition into how bankruptcy applies to businesses? Here there's another option, which is chapter 11. We still have chapter seven, is that right? You do, you do. Chapter seven is, um, you know, it's a graveyard, it's a funeral. Um, chapter 11 is rebirth. So chapter seven, you know, so I told you bankruptcy gets a bad rap because most people think it's just where bad firms go to die. And there is, there is an undertaker in bankruptcy called chapter seven, and it is where firms go to die. But most firms do not want to go to death. They want to go to rebirth. And there's an avenue for that called chapter 11, which is designed to say, hey, let's figure out whether you actually have a future. And if you do, let's fix your debts so that you can live that future. And the idea here is to enable potentially uh, useful businesses to have this second chance rather than a fire sale. Yes. So the key idea is that the, the firm enters bankruptcy and um, the judge has, to, has a preliminary question, which is, um, do, is this firm viable? 
And, and, and that may not be clear for several months in, but that's in the back of the judge's mind that I don't want to save firms that are zombies, that really should just be put into chapter seven and put to death. Um, but if you're convinced that the firm is viable, that it has a future, then your goal is to figure out what's the firm worth, how much, given how much it's worth going forward, how much of its debt can it pay? And you might say, oh, I think this firm can pay a hundred of its debts. And you say, oh, that's great. But it turns out it owes 200. All right, what do we do with that other hundred? Well, we're gonna have to somehow reduce it. So what that typically means is that you're going to, and here's the sad part, shareholders of, of corporations, they're gonna get wiped out. They lose everything. They lose their shares. And um, creditors are gonna have their sort of debt converted to equity. They're gonna take the place of the old shareholders. But through that process, you're basically gonna change this balance sheet where you had a lot of debt, and so you're gonna shrink that debt, and then you're gonna change some of that debt into equity, which is just a complicated way of saying that going forward, this firm's obligations to pay will be lower because there just won't be as many creditors anymore. Some of those creditors will be converted to shareholders, and they're now the owners of the firm. Another distinction between seven and 11 that you've written about is that in seven, the whole process is placed in, in the hands of a third party, whereas in chapter 11, the company's management can be still playing an active role. Yeah, so that, that's a critical distinction, both in practice and for, for your understanding of how bankruptcy works, is that chapter seven is that funeral, and the undertaker is a, an agent of the court who's charged with collecting the assets and liquidating them. Management lose their jobs immediately. Chapter 11, is, is, it has this phrase called the debtor in possession. Debtor meaning the person who owes the debt, in this case, the person is a corporation, and in possession because the management still runs the firm. And the theory there is that the managers are in the best position to know how to run this firm profitably. It's kind of controversial. Some people say, oh, those managers got us in trouble in the first place. What are they doing there? Well, who, but you know, there's an old adage. It takes a theory to beat a theory. Find me someone better. And usually it's a lot harder to find a manager who's gonna do better. Yes, these managers continue running the firm. And it's important because the typical bankruptcy can last half a year, can last longer. So the firm is in bankruptcy. And while the goal is to figure out how much debt can you pay? Well, that takes time and you're running the firm. And so, you know, you can't let the firm just be mothballed during this bankruptcy process. You gotta keep running it. You gotta service customers, honor warranties and stuff like that. So you really need the managers around to keep running the firm. You write about how chapter 11 may work differently or that it does work differently uh, for small businesses versus large businesses. We have to start at the dawn of time. So the dawn of time for bankruptcy purposes is the late 1800s um, because modern Chapter 11, this corporate, this, this law described, this rebirth law, it was modeled on the process for restructuring the debts of railroads. So our law, Chapter 11, is the child of railroad reorganizations of the late 1800s and early 1900s. Why was that? Because we'd never seen, until the railroads, corporations of such massive scale and such incredibly complicated capital structures, like just really complicated debts. And so lawyers figured out a way to deal with that problem. The way they dealt with it got written into a statute that we use today. Now, that's important to keep in mind because chapter 11 was written with massive, massive corporations in mind. And now we have businesses of all size facing 
real struggles. Right. So small businesses, there are no railroads there. I mean, maybe there's a tiny railroad. I don't know. But the typical small business, you got to think about it. It's like your your drywall contractor, the barbershop, the um, the retailer. Um, they, 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 they come incredibly diverse, di incredible diversity, but they don't look like railroads. And what that has, means is that this process of Chapter 11 turns out to be really complicated, really costly for small businesses. And as a result, many small businesses, they start the process and they can't finish it. So one of the statistics is that um, about two thirds of chapter 11 cases filed by small businesses end in liquidation. The firm is just basically liquidated. The judge decides there's no future. What that's gotta tell you is that, wait, let's assume the judge is getting it right, that the judge is getting right, that two thirds of the firms are really dead on arrival Judge has to figure that out. But um, wait, so that means there are very few small businesses that should be saved? Well, actually, maybe not. Here's another statistic. For every 100 firms that, that enter distress as measured by credit scores, um, only about 20% file for bankruptcy. So the vast majority of firms that suffer distress never file for bankruptcy. And those that do turn out to be really kind of troubled firms that get liquidated. Okay, so what that's saying is something weird is going on in bankruptcy. What is it? I think what, you're, what we've seen historically is that chapter 11 is really costly, really cumbersome. It's used only as a last ditch effort by many firms that really it's just their last gasp. But firms that might be viable, they're trying to avoid it. Now, why would you avoid chapter 11? I told you it's costly. It takes a long time, but here's a bigger one is that in chapter 11, I think I mentioned this before that, remember I said that when you restructure a firm, the first thing that typically happens is you wipe out the shareholders. So the management loses control. Yeah, and was, so the owner is thrown out. That's fine if you're talking about General Motors because in the typical large corporation, we have what's called a separation of ownership and management. There's the managers, they may own some shares, but they don't have to own shares, but then you have dispersed shareholders. So when you talk about General Motors or Chrysler, if you wipe out the shares, it means you're wiping out, you know, the holdings of pension funds, the holdings of investment banks, but the managers are still there. In a small business, there is no separation of those things typically. Usually the owner is the manager. So if you're gonna say, hey, why don't you file for chapter 11? And I say to you, well, what's gonna happen to me in chapter 11? And you say to me, well, Ed, um, you're gonna have your ownership interest wiped out. And I'm gonna say, what? This firm that sort of is my baby, I, I, I created this thing. It's, I have blood and sweat equity in this firm. I spent years doing this. I'm like the typical entrepreneur who's basically been underpaid for a decade because I love this business. And you're telling me that I'm gonna bring my firm in and continue running it even though it's not mine anymore? Go to hell, I'm not gonna do that. So imagine you, that the typical small, suppose I'm a small business owner. Maybe I'm, as you can tell, I'm really into hair and I'm a barber, okay? So you say, Ed's barbershop, it's in trouble. And you say to me, Ed, why don't you take your firm into chapter 11? Because you have too much debt, you can't pay it as it comes due. This could give your firm new life. And I say, wait, this is my baby, this is my business. You're, what's gonna happen to me in chapter 11? And you say, well, Ed, you're gonna lose your ownership of this thing, but you continue running it if you want to, but you're gonna lose your ownership interest. And I'm gonna say, wait, this business is me. Like, why would I do that? Why would I bring it into business and work for somebody else? 
The reason I'm an entrepreneur is I want to work for me. I don't work for somebody else who owns Ed's Barbershop. So what I might do instead is say, you know, go to hell. I'm going to actually put my firm into chapter seven, let it die. And then I'm going to move down the street and open Ed's new. Barbershop number two and move on with life again. So the idea is that chapter 11 is a particularly bad fit for small businesses because it says if you want relief, you must get your ownership interest wiped out. So that might explain why bankruptcy is rarely used by small businesses. It's also the reason why the law was changed last summer. A quick break for the lawyers out there. The code for this interview is 200518. Again, that's 200518. And now back to the interview. Well, given that difference between small businesses and the way they're structured, the way they're incentivized, what has Congress done post-COVID to make it more appealing? Well, they actually did it miraculously pre-COVID. So last summer, Congress enacted legislation signed by the president that went into law, but it became effective. And it's kind of interesting. It went became effective in mid, roughly late February of this year. It's like miraculous. It's almost like somebody anticipated a pandemic because what this new law does is that it dismantles a lot of the costs of Chapter 11 for small businesses. The most important thing it does is it says you, the business owner, Ed, your barbershop, you can bring your firm in and not lose your ownership. So you as the owner don't get wiped out anymore. Wait, when you're describing Chapter 11, you said that essentially what happens is the whole class of shareholders are replaced by the class of debtors. The debtors take the equity. What do the debtors get in the new version? Okay, it's a little complicated, but the way it will work is kind of like um, chapter 13 consumer bankruptcy. So we kind of have to go back a few minutes. Remember there we said that if you as a consumer want to keep all your assets, what you have to do is pay your income over three to five years. That's sort of the, 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 the model that the new small business law applies. It, remember that it's a trade-off says, if you want to keep stuff, just pay your income. We're saying to the small business owner, what do you want to keep? Your ownership. We're going to let you keep that as long as you pay your income to your creditors over a three to five year period. What it says to the small business is that your owner can keep an ownership interest as long as the owner pays to creditors sort of excess income, income over expenses, over a period of time, okay? Not to exceed, I think, five years. Um, And during that time, it's true that creditors are not getting as much as they used to get or possibly could have got, but what they're guaranteed is that you have to convince convince the court that these creditors are gonna get at least as much as they would get in liquidation. So you're saying like, yes, I'm keeping my equity, and yes, these shareholders, these, these creditors, they're not getting my ownership interest. I'm just paying them some cash over a period of time, but they're doing better than they would in liquidation. In the abstract, it feels kind of controversial because it is a big departure from the past, but it really wasn't that controversial because I think there was a broad awareness that this machinery built for railroads isn't a good fit for small businesses. This machinery built for railroads doesn't work for barbershops. We don't want chapter 11 to be just kicking the can down the road where an entrepreneur who's, you know, it's Ed, every, every head he cuts looks like mine. Nobody wants that. So you, this is a not a viable business. And so Ed should be shut down. And we want someone to alert us early on 
not later on. And this new, this new option for small businesses, uh, as you mentioned, came along at a fortuitous time. And the threshold for what qualifies as a small business was raised in the CARES Act. What was changed? In the aftermath of the coronavirus crisis, uh, the financial impacts of that coronavirus um, crisis, one of the first things that was done in the context of the CARES Act was to take us take stock, take stock of our bankruptcy code and see are there at least are there some simple fixes that would make our bankruptcy code better equipped to deal with the upcoming crisis. And so one of the things that was changed was raising the debt limit to take advantage of these new small business provisions. So the original debt limit as enacted last summer was 2.7 million. The new limit is raised to 7.5 million. You know, with these thresholds, are we talking about a large chunk of bankruptcies are now qualifying for this alternative structure or is it only a small percentage? My guess is that under this new debt limit, probably about 50 to 55% is a rough estimate of businesses that file for chapter 11 will qualify for the new small business law. So one view is that this, by raising the debt limit, a, de a decent estimate is that over half of the firms that file for chapter 11 will now be able to take advantage of the new law. How do courts decide whether or not to hear a bankruptcy case? Is that a, a choice by the, the judge or do all businesses have some type of access or right to such a filing? Yeah, no, all businesses have um, a right to file. And in some sense, you might think of bankruptcy law as having open access that any firm can commence a bankruptcy case. In theory, it doesn't happen in practice, but in theory, you could file for bankruptcy even if you're completely healthy as a firm. Like Facebook could file today. Nothing stops that, but it's not going to. <clears throat> what, because for two reasons. One is, you know, bankruptcy is not a popular thing to do. So it's, it's a negative signal. But more than that, once a firm files for bankruptcy, the judge has the ability to dismiss the case, get rid of it, if it doesn't belong there. And what judges are looking for is, is this a firm that has debt? If you have no debt, there's really nothing for bankruptcy to do. Secondly, is this firm having trouble paying its debt? You know, we use the firm, we usually use the terms insolvent or, you know, having cash flow problems. That's what the judge is looking for. And in the absence of those kinds of problems, meaning problems that bankruptcy law can fix, the judge can dismiss the case. But once the once a judge takes the case and a court is reviewing it, it can be rather time consuming or taxing on the court system. Is there enough capacity, given the, the significant nature of the current crisis, to handle what could be a, a large caseload? Yeah, I think that's a, it's a, it's a, important question and yet a difficult one to answer. And the reason it's difficult to answer is first that the, the time costs of a bankruptcy case vary by type of case. So take, for example, the bankruptcy filing of General Motors. Huge, massive. It took 30 days. Why was that? Well, because it had an army of financial experts, lawyers, investment bankers, you name it, advisors, sort of streamlining the process so much so that these experts had figured out what was going to happen in General Motors bankruptcy before it happened. The bank basically it's, some, it's sometimes called a prepackaged bankruptcy, but 
all the creditors and the firm itself had gotten together, teed up a plan. And so when they filed, they knew 30 days. So if for firms that have sort of that back office support, there's the, the, the burden on the bankruptcy court can be a lot smaller because in some sense, if, if all the creditors or most of them are in agreement about what should be done, you know, there's not a whole lot of controversy that the judge needs to resolve. I do think we do have to worry about congestion of our courts, many cases being filed in the months ahead or weeks or months ahead um, from the as the COVID-19 crisis plays itself out financially. But the burden, I, my suspicion is that the burden of a massive number of small business cases would be really difficult for our bankruptcy system. Well, given that you have written on this topic extensively, in the current situation, is there any advice or suggestions that you may have to lawmakers who may be looking to make additional tweaks or changes to the bankruptcy code? When Congress has been thinking about how to help businesses weather the storm of this crisis, they've only thought about extending money outside of bankruptcy. For many small business, for many, not small business, for many large businesses, you might think of airlines, for example, many large businesses, they came into this crisis financially fragile. They took on debts, they increased what we call their leverage during the months or years preceding the crisis. So these are firms that were in trouble before the crisis occurred. In some sense, these firms have two problems going into the crisis. They have too much debt and they got a coronavirus problem. When they get stimulus money, that stimulus money is basically helping them solve both problems. So government money is helping over indebted firms cope with that debt. I think that outside of bankruptcy, that offering financing to firms outside of bankruptcy is losing an opportunity to say, hey, some of these businesses should get that financing, but in bankruptcy. We should bring these firms into bankruptcy and solve that debt problem at the same time we're allowing the firm to survive. Professor Morrison, before we let you go, are there any uh, insights that you might share with the audience uh, given the state of the American economy? The ancient Greeks, you know, the orators, they would get in like the senators and so they would get in front of a crowd and they'd blather on, blather on, blather on. But then there was this phrase, everybody understood, and it, I don't know what the Greek words, but it basically said, what I'm about to say is what I wanna be remembered for. And so everybody who was asleep suddenly woke up and said, okay, now it's time to listen. So that's what I wanna do now, <laughs> which is like, I've said so far that Congress is missing an opportunity to leverage the bankruptcy code and use it in tandem with the CARES Act to allocate funds in a smart way. That instead of flushing all firms with cash, flush some firms with cash inside of bankruptcy. It's important to remember that we've done it before. We did it in General Motors. We did it in Chrysler. In each of those cases, bankruptcies during a crisis, in my view, while it's important to use bankruptcy in tandem with current policies for large corporations, I think the government should do everything possible to delay bankruptcies by consumers and small businesses. I think it's, very, it's a very different environment there because the first thing, as we talked about before, is that if you flood our bankruptcy courts with small business filings and consumer filings, the courts are potentially gonna be overwhelmed. And here's another important point, is that when you save a firm, what's critically important is knowing if that firm has a future. For small businesses that don't have the back office, it's very hard to prove I have a future. 
you know, I don't know financial experts who can do projections. I have no accountants who can show how robust my financials were prior to this crisis. You know, I'm an entrepreneur. I have Ed's Barbershop. But when you're talking about the United Airlines of the world, they have that back office. It's going to be much easier for a large corporation to convince a judge I'm viable than a small business. So we really should worry about in bankruptcies for small businesses is that one reason not to flood the courts with those is because the typical small business will go in and it's going to be devilishly difficult to figure out is this firm viable? Let's wait till the crisis is over to figure that out. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksOnLaw.com slash MCLE podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting edge interviews on the California MCLE podcast.